Thank you. You guys did a good job. Not as good as Jesse, but you did a good job. <laughs> well, today we continue our series from the Old Testament. And some of the people are heroes of the faith. In fact, some of them are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, which was a chapter of faith. For instance, there was Noah, who in faith built an ark to save the world. There is the story and the listing of Sarah, who in her old age conceived a child by faith. There was Moses, who in faith led the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But even though they were people of faith, they were people with clay feet. They were not perfect. They were people who had problems or issues in their life. For instance, after the floodwaters had subsided, Noah got drunk. When Sarah heard that she was going to have a child in her old age, the Bible says that she laughed. As a matter of fact, she named her son Isaac, which means laughter. And then there was Moses who killed an Egyptian and fled from Pharaoh's palace. So they were not men and women who were perfect. They were people who had clay feet, who sinned and made mistakes. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, a story about David who responded to a situation foolishly in that he numbered Israel. In other words, he conducted a census. Now we think, now what's the big deal there? I mean, why is that a problem that, that David simply conducted a census that he numbered the people? And yet the Bible says that God was displeased. Take your Bibles, turn with me please to First Chronicles chapter 21, beginning in verse number 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. And Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why does my lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the number of the census of all the people to David. And all Israel were one million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword. And Judah was four hundred and seventy thousand men who drew the sword. But he did not number Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing, so he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. There are several things that we see in this passage of Scripture. For me, the first is the audacity of temptation. You'll notice there in verse number 1 it says, Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So Satan then is the tempter, and the thing that astounds me about Satan is his audacity. You, you might recall in the Old Testament 
when he decided to tempt Adam and Eve. Now, understand that Adam and Eve were perfect. They had never sinned at this time. They were in a perfect environment. They had a perfect relationship to God. And yet Satan was so audacious, he believed that he could persuade them to disobey the Lord. And so the Bible says in Genesis 3, 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That is amazing to me, astounding to me, that Satan was questioning the Word of God. God who cannot lie. And yet he said, Did God say? Did God tell you the truth about that? But the audacity of Satan to believe that he could persuade these perfect people in a perfect environment to be disobedient to God. And now David is tempted by this same adversary. Albert Barnes wrote, Satan is here for the first time by name introduced to us. And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to be aware that Satan tempts us. That is the reason that Simon Peter gave us the warning, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we must understand that Satan is the tempter and that he tempts us. Now, let me share with you four facts about temptation. If we are tempted then let me give you four facts about temptation. The first being that temptation is not sin. Now, let me illustrate it this way. If I see a coconut pie, which is my very favorite, and I, I'm th I would sure like to have a slice of that. And I, I can just taste that pie. Now, I am being tempted concerning the pie. The pie. But, Doc, I don't gain any weight unless I eat it. See? So there, there is no weight gain unless I eat the pie. Temptation is not sin. It is when we yield to the temptation that sin comes. Now, look at Eve. She was tempted, the Bible says in Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. Now, when she saw the fruit and she desired the fruit, there was no sin. Sin entered into the world when she took of the fruit. So, temptation is not sin. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the Bible says then that Jesus was tempted. Did Jesus sin? No, the Scripture says that He was without sin. So Jesus was tempted, and yet the Bible says that He did not sin. Therefore, temptation is not sin. The second fact is that temptation is universal. No one escapes temptation. 
Adam was created perfect, but he was tempted. Jesus was the Son of God, but he was tempted. So, ladies and gentlemen, I know that some of you are righteous and holy and all of those things, but you are not exempt from temptation. All of us experience temptation. It is universal. The third thing is, is that temptation is personal. Satan probably knows you better than you know yourself, and he knows your areas of weakness, and that is where he is going to attack you. I can give you a number of examples from that, but one I will share with you is the story of the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus wanting to know how he could become a part of the kingdom of God, you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, go sell what you have and give to the poor. Now, why did Jesus say that? Because he didn't say that to others. He didn't tell other people that they needed to sell what they had and give the proceeds to the poor, but he said it to him. Why? Because that was his area of weakness. That was his problem area, you see. His area of weakness was in the area of money, and that is where Satan will attack in our, in our point of weakness. For instance, the Apostle Paul, I believe that before coming to Christ that his problem area was traditional religious. And now Paul was a religious person. In fact, he persecuted the church. He persecuted Christians because he was being loyal to his religion, which he saw as being under attack by Christianity. So for Paul then to become a believer, it meant that he had to leave his religion to follow after Jesus. And I believe that was the struggle that he had. It was in the area of religion. David's area when he saw Bathsheba was sexual. And that was his area of temptation. Our temptation varies from person to person. In other words, what might be a temptation to you might not be a temptation to me. Uh, for instance, I know that some of you are tempted to... Uh, to Miss church to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. No temptation for me. Some of you are tempted not to be in the choir. No temptation for Steve. See, but then you might have areas where you are tempted. I'm not tempted. I might have areas where I am tempted, and they're not a big thing for you. So temptation then is personal. It varies from person to person. And it also varies from age to age, I have noticed. The temptations I had seven, eight years ago when I was younger are not necessarily the same temptations that I have now, that I'm a little more mature. So the thing is, is that temptation is personal. It's not always the same. And you need to be aware of that, because if you are not, then you can be very vulnerable to temptation. Temptation is personal. Fourth fact about it is that it is limited. The Bible says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So there we have the three channels, I think, through which temptation comes. He mentions, first of all, the lust of the flesh, our, our physical nature. Now, when our fleshly desires are strong, we are vulnerable. And when we are weak in the flesh, we are vulnerable. 
Now, you understand that part about the being strong, the strong desires of the flesh, but what about the weakness of the flesh? Well, that I would refer to Elijah. Elijah was up on Mount Carmel, you recall. He called down fire from heaven. There was a great uh, victory for the Lord and so forth. It was immediately after that that Jezebel threatened his life. And so Elijah takes off running. He wasn't scared of the prophets, but he was scared of that woman. So he takes off running from her. He is exhausted. There he is under the juniper tree, exhausted, physically weak, and he was vulnerable to temptation. And that was the reason that under the juniper tree, Elijah was praying and he said, Oh God, I'm ready to die. He said, If this, I am, I'm the only one serving you, and he just wanted to die. But his flesh was weak. An example of emotional weakness would be Moses. Moses was trying to lead the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage to the promised land. They were complaining and griping all the way, and he was emotionally spent. He was worn out. And so he said, God, if this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life, then take me home now because I've had my share. I don't want any more of it. So one area of temptation is the flesh. There are strong fleshly desires, and we become vulnerable. And then when we find ourselves in a weakened state, we become vulnerable again. Secondly, he mentions the pride of life. Temptation comes through pride. It comes through the ego. It did with Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse number 5. Satan said, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. That was the temptation to her. Eve, if you eat of this fruit, then you will become like God. There is a tremendous appeal to the ego that if I take of the fruit, though forbidden, God knows that you will become like him. Jesus was tempted with the kingdoms of the world. The Bible says in Matthew 4, 8, and 9, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. I'm going to give you all of these things, Jesus. There is an appeal to the ego, there is an appeal to pride. I'm going to give you all these things if you worship me. David also struggled with pride here in verse number 2. So David said to Joab and to the princess of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know their number. You see, he wanted to number the people out of an issue of pride. In fact, Matthew Henry wrote, he did it in the pride of his heart. It was a motivation of pride, a temptation of pride. So, what are the three channels of temptation? Well, there's the lust of the flesh. He says there's the pride of life. And then there's the lust of the eyes. In other words, we want what we see. Now, that's the reason that you watch so many of those television commercials. You deserve it. We want what we see. Tiger Woods wanted what he saw. And some of you are tempted by Internet pornography and things of that nature because that is an avenue of temptation. Satan tempts us through the eyes, through the things that we see. So he tempts us through the flesh, he tempts us through pride, and he tempts us through the eyes. So there's the audacity of temptation. 
There's a word of caution in verse number 3. And Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why does my Lord seek this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? And then it says down in verse number 6 that Joab saw this as abhorrent. You know, here's the good thing. If you have a good godly friend and you are being tempted in some area, a good godly friend will caution you about that temptation. And that's what Joab is doing here. He is cautioning David. He said, David, you need to be content. This is needless. There is no reason for you to number the people. One commentator wrote, God had promised to multiply them, and he needed not question the accomplishment of that promise. The Bible had stated in Deuteronomy 1.11, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are. You see... Numbering the people was needless, and that's the point. But he was, being, he was being tempted through pride. Joab said, this is not necessary. This is needless, and it is potentially dangerous. Matthew Henry wrote, in doing it, he might be a cause of trespass to Israel and might provoke God against them. Do you see that Joab understood that? He understood that with the temptation that there were consequences. But David did not. David was only motivated by pride. He wanted the people numbered. He wanted to know the count. And Joab cautions him, and David ignored it. Pride prevailed in verse number 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Pride is the downfall of many people. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before stumbling. And so it says there in verse number 7, and God was displeased with this thing. Folks, we, we have all of these sins that we don't do, therefore we don't like. But do you understand the consequence, the seriousness of pride? And we are filled with pride today. In fact, we spell we with two eyes. The Bible says in Proverbs 6:16 6, and 17, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Well, when I read that long ago the first time, I guess it's six things that God hates, seven things God, what, what on earth would they be? You know the number one that's mentioned? Haughty eyes. Pride. The Bible says there are things that God hates, and the sin that leads the list is pride. David wanted to number the people, and Joab cautioned him, and David ignored it. There are serious consequences to disobedience. Verse number 9, the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, that I may do it to you. That reminds me of when I was a little boy and I would do something wrong and my mother would say, Wendell, 
go out and cut a switch and bring it to me, and it better be a good one. Well, that's what God is saying to David. David, go and cut a switch. He said, I'm going to give you three choices. Verse number 12, three years of famine. He said, you can choose as a result of this that Israel suffers through three years of famine. He continues, or three months to be swept away before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you. He said, I can turn you over to your enemy for three months. They'll prevail against you. He continues, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout the territory of Israel. So he said, or uh, for three days uh, I'll send judgment. So, David, here's your choice. You have three years of famine. You have three months of your enemy prevailing over you, or three days of my judgment. And so he chose a switch. Verse number 13. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Now, David said, if those are the three choices, then I'm going to give myself to the Lord. Why? Because he knew that God was merciful. He understood that God was mer- Don't let me fall into the hands of man. I understand that, don't you? Don't let me fall into the hands of man. He says, I will trust myself to God. God is merciful. But ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. Not only is God merciful, God is also just. And He disciplines His children. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 8, the Scripture says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, God disciplines His children, and the Bible says that if you sin and are not disciplined, then you're not a child of God. When my children were growing up, I disciplined them when they did wrong. I did not discipline the neighbor's children. They were not mine. And that's what the Bible says about God, that God disciplines His children. Israel had a covenant with God, and now the covenant is broken, and therefore there's consequence in verse 14. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. Seventy thousand men of Israel fell. Well, there were going to be 70,000 less to count. There was a consequence to the sin. And then there's a responsibility of repentance with David. Personal responsibility, verse 17. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let thy hand be against me and my father's household, but not against thy people, that they should be plagued. I think the thing that separates David from most people is that he was willing to accept responsibility for his actions. Did you notice the personal pronouns that are used in that verse? I mean, he totally accepted responsibility for it. And it reminds me of Psalm 51 after Nathan pointed out that David had sinned when he took Bathsheba. And then the 51st Psalm is his confession to God. And and it is filled with personal pronouns as he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity." Wash me, it is my sin. He continues and cleanse me from my sin. You see, with David, there is a recognition 
and an acceptance of responsibility for his sin. He understood that the sin was his, and he accepted responsibility for it. David understood that his fellowship with God had been broken now. That he was not right with God, and that others would suffer as a result of it. Folks, I think this to be important. We hear so much today about you can do whatever you want. It is your decision. It is your life. There are victimless crimes and all of those things. You do. Let me say something to you. When you make bad decisions, when you sin, others are affected, especially your family. There's a pastor friend of mine in Kansas City who once made the statement that a parent is no happier than their saddest child. How true that is. You see, I can go out and do some things, but it's not just me. It doesn't just affect me. It affects others. And that's what David is saying here. He understood that his sin now was affecting other people. It broke his fellowship and grieved his heart. In verse number 8, And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I've done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. His heart was grieved when he recognized his sin, and that was David. In the 51st Psalm, he said, make me to hear joy and gladness. You see, ladies and gentlemen, as a child of God, there should be joy in your heart. Paul and Silas had joy when they were in prison. Jesus faced the cross, and the Bible says that he did so with joy. And one of the reasons there are so many Christians that do not have joy in their Christian life is because they have sin in their life, sin that they've not dealt with. You can never have the joy of God when you tolerate sin. I'm not saying that you don't sin, but I'm saying that if you're going to have the joy of the Lord in your life, then you have to deal with that sin because sin steals your joy. And you'll never have joy until you're right in fellowship with God. Sin also compromises our witness. We're not an effective witness. So let me conclude. No one's above the temptations of Satan. We all are tempted. No one's above them. There are three channels through which sin comes, I believe. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Those are the channels through which I think all sin comes. And when we're tempted... Though temptation is not sin, yielding to it is. And when we're tempted, we have to make a decision as to whether or not we're going to yield to it. Like David here, we can choose disobedience and their consequences. Or we can choose obedience to God. But we must accept responsibility for our own choices. You have to accept responsibility for your sin, understanding that sin displeases God. And my friend, and I know because it is partially testimonial, after you have been involved in a sin for a period of time, you become comfortable with it. That is the reason as soon as the Holy Spirit convicts you that something is sin, you need to immediately confess it that God might forgive you that you might be restored to fellowship with Him. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads with me for just a moment. And would you ask the Lord, Father,
Reveal to me what you see when you see me. And if there is some sin in your life that you need to confess, would you do it right now? Just confess it to the Father. Because the Bible says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Just confess it to the Father. Our Father, examine our hearts today. Show us what you see. And Lord, for those who have a sin that is brought to their mind, that your Spirit has brought, I pray, Father, that they will confess it, accept your forgiveness, and leave this place in victory today. Now, just a moment as our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, in just a moment we're going to stand, the choir is going to sing, it's a hymn of invitation. If you're here without Jesus today, would you give your life to Him? Would you make a commitment of your life to Christ today? If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as a part of our family. So right now, would you stand with me, please, as we stand together, the choir sings, as they sing, You Come, I'll greet you as you do.